right, all right. I feel since we're talking about family, I should say I'm sorry I called you a jerk earlier, Tyler, Tyler but, uh, you know, it's just defending Jess. So anyway, uh, it's good to be with you, family. God bless you. Whatever home you're in, whether you're here with us in our house, you're at your house uh, online, uh, or, you know, wherever you're watching today, this is a, we are gathered as uh, the body of Christ in the household of God. This is the church, the place where God lives by his Holy Spirit. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. I'm shifting gears on you a little bit today. We're not going to be in Exodus. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So you can get to the New Testament there. It's going to wrap up this fam series perfectly. Um, but before we do that, a couple of things that are super important. I can't go on without uh, th these things. Uh, 13 years ago when I became the senior pastor, uh, I started this crazy thing of wrapping Christmas tree lights around my stool. And so I cannot preach after Thanksgiving without the stool lighting. So here's the annual ceremony still lighting. There we go. Now we go. You notice now I'm too old to bend over and plug it in, so they just naturally, they just turn it on for me. <laughs> but uh, listen, I, one of the things I just want to encourage that, that our Christmas Eve at home experience is going to be phenomenal. There are thousands of hours already invested in this thing, and we had 25,000 people join us for Easter online, completely online. We want to have 50,000 join us for Christmas. So invite your friends, plan your family uh, day and evening around that on Christmas Eve. It's going to be a special program, and you're really going to love it. And uh, so if you're visiting here for the first time today, maybe online, maybe here in the house, uh, we, welcome to our family. Welcome to our home. We hope that you feel comfortable. We hope that you feel like you can just lay on the sofa and watch TV and eat all of our food, because that's what we normally do during Thanksgiving. But if you want to get to know us and be a part of our family, just text hello anytime during this uh, sermon, uh, but not during the good parts of the sermon. Uh, the, the number on your screen, anytime during the service, we'd love to get to know you. Well, in this crazy year, everything has been just different. And I'm, I'm sure that most of you have spent probably one of the most different, crazy, weird Thanksgivings of your existence, right? Uh, because we canceled plans. We didn't travel. Uh, grandma and grandpa said, no, don't come to our house. And we said, we're not coming anyway. We want to say distance and we want to say stay safe and healthy and all those things. If you were able to have a big gathering, like in the traditional sense of Thanksgiving, I'm totally jealous because growing up in, uh, when I was a kid, man, uh, that's when you grow up, by the way. When I was a kid, I'm still growing up. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved going to grandma's house. That was the thing. So if you didn't get to uh, you know, celebrate and experience Thanksgiving this year, let me just remind you of what you missed, okay? Thanksgiving is an annual celebration, uh, usually yearly, um, where we gather together with rowdy cousins and eccentric aunts and crazy uncles and boyfriends and girlfriends who will have broken up by Christmas, and uh, these, along with grown-up siblings and other relatives that we don't really know, they come and they descend on somebody's house for three or four days. And during that time, they completely wreck the kitchen. They break everything in the house. They dirty every inch of it. They talk and laugh loudly. They referee small kids. They sleep in small beds or on the floor in sleeping bags. And generally, everyone gets out of their schedule and angry. This is how we annually say thank you. Thank you, God, for all that you've done in our family. And I'm making fun because it's true. There's hardly a time after a two or three days with the family, you're going, okay, I've had enough of that or that or that. And we walk away, but here's, here's why we keep doing it year after year after year after year, because we love our family. We love them. We know they're not perfect. We know that we're going to argue. We know that sometimes the kids are not going to get along, but we're thankful. And if that's the story in our family families... That's the story in the family of God, the household of God. 
That's the story in Moses' family, as we've seen the last seven weeks, that no matter what happens to your family, you love them, even when you come to this realization. And if you haven't yet, you will. Man, my family's weird. My family's a mess. And if you're sitting here right now, and you're not thinking your family's weird, then you're the weird one in the family. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's not true. We're all strange. We're all different. We all have our idiosyncrasies that sooner or later will get under our family's skin. But here's the deal. If our earthly family is loving and we care about them and we would do anything to be with them, and yet they're imperfect, then how much more the church of Jesus Christ? Where we are completely different, come from different backgrounds, different settings, different personalities, but now we are this collection of people who are different, but by the grace of the Father and the blood of our brother Jesus Christ, we are family. Amen? So um, we're going to get in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I wanted to end this um, series by looking at what the Bible says in the New Testament about the family, the household of God. And this is a famous passage. Maybe you've heard it before. There's so much here I want to jump into it. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're new, if you don't have a Bible, I hope you get one. If you need one, call the church. We'll send one to you. We want you to be in the Word of God constantly And uh, we started off on Sundays. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, to the end of that chapter. That's where we're going to hang out today. All right? Y'all ready for the word of the Lord? Here it is. Here it is. Paul writing to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing you these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the, the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up into glory. Would you join me, and let's pray, ask the Lord to speak to us. God, like Elijah, like Moses, Like your prophets and servants of old, they wandered in the desert, they wandered up the mountain, and you spoke to them. And now we don't have to do that. We can open up your written word, the Bible, that speaks of the living word, your son, Jesus, and by your spirit, we can hear from you. So God, here's my prayer today, that the thousands of people that hear this sermon right now, miraculously, by your power, will hear from you. That's it. That'll be enough. If we can just hear from you today, whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever we've done, God, would you speak to us now through the power of the Word of God, by the power of your Spirit. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So this first letter to Timothy, Paul uh, begins to give Timothy some instructions. He's left Timothy in this young church in Ephesus, and Timothy's a young pastor and experienced. And so Paul says, I need to give you a bunch of instructions on how we operate in the household of God. How do we behave there? And that's why I I start with this, this kind of passage or this phrase here in verse 14. How to behave in the household of God. If you want to look at 1 Timothy, and I hope you get a chance to read it later, it's really best to read it as one big letter without numbers and stuff, right? Because that's the way it was written in the first century. But if you could read this whole letter, what you'd find is that Paul gives Timothy the way that the house, he gives a bunch of household rules. Timothy, here's how you're supposed to act. Here's how kids act in the house. They don't quarrel. They they stick to sound teaching. 
They pray for people in authority that are in the government and kings and emperors and stuff. They, he talks about women's roles. He talks about requirements for elders. He talks about requirements for people who serve in the church, servants in the world. He says, here's how you act in the marketplace. Here's how you respond to your boss. He gives all, all these instructions, and right in the middle of it, in the middle of this letter, I don't know if Paul did this on purpose, we have these verses where he just kind of says, stop, listen, I'm giving you a bunch of rules and stuff, but I want to tell you why. I may not be able to get to you for a while, and I'm the old wise uh, apostle who started this church in Ephesus, likely. He spent two years there teaching in one of the lecture halls. He goes, listen, I may not be able to get back to you soon, and I hear, I know how families are. You got crazy aunts and uncles, brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas. I know how people are, so let me just give you some instructions for living in the household of God. Why is he give instructions? Because in any household, people are prone to misbehavior. And so he says, listen, this is how you ought to behave in this household. Guys, when you grew up, or if you're now leading a family, or you're in charge of your house, uh, are there rules in the house? Are there house rules? There are. They can be as, as crazy as that's dad's chair, don't sit in it. It can be a curfew. It can be the media that we watch. It can be the hour that the iPhones come on and come off. It can be the way that we sit at the table. It can be the way we pray. It's all these rules is what make it eventually for a father to say, if you're not heard from your father or you are a father, you've probably heard this line. You've said this line. As long as you live under my roof, what? You'll live by my rules. There are household rules. And all of us could have fun going around sharing with each other about the different crazy rules we grew up with and now we have in the homes that we've established. But it's same in the house of God. The household of God describes that those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we have to follow some rules. I want to say it again. This is how you know we, how we ought to behave in the household of God. Guys, let's just say this. As kids in the household of God, we ought to behave. Okay? Now, if, if you need more proof that we are the household of God, just, let's just go again with me to Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews talks about Moses and Jesus, the difference between the two of them. And he says that in the Old Testament, the household of God, Moses was a servant in the house. We've been talking about him the last seven weeks. He was a servant in the house. But now in these days, Jesus is a son in the house. You see the difference there. The difference there is that Jesus speaks authoritatively. This is the way the house is supposed to go. And so Jesus, as a son, becomes our blood brother, makes us a part of God's family. Peter refers to Christians as the household of God. Ephesians 2.19, we'll come back to this in just a moment. It says that the saints, that's me and you, brothers and sisters, are members of the household of God. So since we're in the household of God today, let's just review some of the rules. Now, there are rules. This is the way we're supposed to act. God, our Father, has house rules. God doesn't have to say, as long as you live under my, you know, my heavens, you, you will abide by my rules. He gives us the rules, and he chooses to let us be obedient by faith or not, but there are rules to live by in the house of God. When I was growing up, and I grew up in the, in the, in the church, I, I consider myself a church rat, you know, like kids that spend time in the gym or gym rats. I'm a church rat. I grew up in the church, okay? I mean, from little. And I was always told, here's a house rule. You don't run in the house of God. You don't run in the house of God. Now, when I was six or seven or eight, I'm like, come on, man. God doesn't care if I run in this house because, you know, uh, God likes kids. And I'm sure he's fine with me running. I'm sure that if you knew what I did, when people were like, don't run in the, in the house of God, I'm like, I bet swimming in the baptistry is not a good one either, huh? 
or eating all the communion bread that's in the refrigerator where I know exactly where it's at. I'm sure there are a lot of things that you don't think I should do in the house of God, but the truth is, is that those were man-made rules. Paul's saying to Timothy that I'm giving you these instructions because this is how you ought to conduct yourself, NIV says. This is how you behave. I just want to get this clear. There are rules for living in the church of the living God. And, and I want to I say this today. I'm not going to dwell on the rules. You guys think this is going to be a rule sermon. It's like, oh, no, here we go. This is a family talk, and Dad's laying down the rules. I'm not. Read 1 Timothy. Those are the rules, right? And there's others, right? We'll get to that in just a moment. But he, he says, this is the household of God. Look in verse 15, which is the church of the living God. Here's the point. I said all that to make this point. The household of God is the church. You're in God's house today. Not the building per se, but the place where God's people gather together. You and I are a part of the house of God. And I want you to see something really clear. God has always moved into our neighborhood to get us to live in his house. According to the scriptures, there are four times that God moved close to us. In the Old Testament, we've talked about Moses. We'll get back to him. Uh, God built this tent that was literally in the middle of the camping uh, situation they had in the, uh, in the desert. And his, his tabernacle was the place where God dwelled. You could literally pull back the flap of your tent and look out there and say, yep, God's home. There's the pillar of fire. There's the pillar of cloud. He lived among us. And then when Solomon built the temple and he established the city of King David, God moved in there with, with uh, his presence through uh, you know, smoke billowing out his presence in the Ark of the Covenant. And then John's Christmas story. You know the Apostle John? He must not have been into Christmas very much. He was trying to make a different point. But here's his whole Christmas story. There's no angels. There's no manger. There's no shepherds. There's no wise men. None of that. John's entire Christmas story is John 1, 14. And uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you might think that's just, well, who cares? That's his, that's his entire story of Jesus being born in the world. But that word for dwell in John 1, 14 is the word literally for tent. It, he literally said, it says that God came and he made his tent among us. He lived with us. And now, guys, the progression is that now he lives in the church and in Christ's followers by his Holy Spirit. So here's the question, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, or you're skeptical about the church, or you've been hurt by the church family, here's the million-dollar question. Why are churches so messed up if God lives here? Well, why are your family so messed up? Just because they're good people in your family and well-meaning parents who make great rules that are for all the people in the house, why are families so messy? Why is the church so messy? Both the church and the family are incredible institutions designed by God for our good. Here's the problem with both families and churches. You have to have humans in them. And um, humans are weird. Humans are prone to sin. Humans are prone to break rules. Humans are really, really, really good at saying, I don't have to follow that rule. I don't want to do that rule. And humans eventually will take something as beautiful as the home, as beautiful as the church, and they'll mess it up and we'll call this Thanksgiving, right? Christ followers, um, this is why how we behave matters, okay? Because I know, I know that some of you in here are questioning the church of Jesus Christ. You're questioning the household of God because you've been hurt badly by it. I know some of you watching online, maybe you're skeptical, go, is this, is this church like the church I grew up in where all these bad things happened, these bad people did things? 
And that's a, that's a great question. How, what kind of family is this? I just want to encourage us as Christ followers, those of us who are brothers and sisters in the household of God, what, how we behave matters because how we behave, how we act is a reflection on dad. How, how we act towards one another and we act in this fellowship that we call the household of God is a reflection in the world on, the behavior, on our father. The world so, sometimes judges our dad by the behavior of his kids. But I want to be careful with this, okay, because I, I want to let you off the hook. I don't want you to walk away from church today feeling like we sometimes do with our family families and going, I have to be good to earn dad's love. I have to do the right thing. I have to break no rules. I have to do all the right things all the time. And if I do that, then I'll please my parents. Sometimes that reality seeps into the church. We go, only if I do good will God love me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, and really it's not the way that earthly homes are designed either, those of you who are parents have gone through hard times with your kids, you know this. There is nothing your kids could do that would make them not love you or make you not love them. There's lots of stuff you can do to make them not love you. Just ask them. But if you are today gathered with us and you're a non-believer, I wanted, I wanted to give you this good news today. You don't have to follow God's rules for him to love you. He wants you to follow his rules. They're best for you. And if you follow his rules, I promise you, you'll be way better off and the family will be way better off if we just do it God's way. I've never seen anybody do it their way, not God's way, and it turns out well, ever. But if you do it God's way, it's going to turn out great. But your dad's going to love you no matter what. In this household, relationship is always greater than the keeping of household rules. That's the way it's supposed to be in the house of God. So it's relationship with Jesus that our family is all about. So we have this household of God, and we're supposed to behave in it. Why are we supposed to behave in it? So that, this is point number two, that our family's reputation is the truth we uphold. Did you see those really cool, picturesque kind of words that, that Paul writes to Timothy? There's snow in my Bible. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, look, a squirrel. Anyway, um, in verse 15, the end of verse 15, do you see the imagery that Paul gives to Timothy? He writes to him, he says, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. I think that Paul did this, you know, really, really intentionally. Obviously, if you've seen any kind of pictures from old time, you know, the, the ancient times, the first century times, you know that every public building, every temple was supported with pillars. That was the main architectural design and um, pattern of all the first century buildings. They hold the building in place. From time to time, you may not know this, I've been actually in Turkey, modern day Turkey, where Ephesus is, and I've been there during an earthquake. It's very prone to earthquakes, so from time to time, they would have to prop up these pillars. You don't want cracked pillars holding up the temple. Paul says, if you get this picture, Timothy, you'll understand how important the church is, the household of God, in holding up the truth. That's what we do. That's what we're here for. Why would this be such a great illustration for Timothy and the Christians in Ephesus? Because one of the ancient wonders of the world, the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis, I've got a picture there for you on the screen. This is an artist's rendition of what it may have looked like based on archaeological finds and all that. Now, this is, gonna, this is a very small model right? If you were there, if you could, if you could transport back in time, when, when Timothy is reading this letter from Paul, this structure is longer than a football field. 
It's wider than a football field. These columns are 40 feet tall. It is one of the most it's one of the first structures in the ancient world to be completely made out of marble. So I just want you to think of the Apostle Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, the, the church, the household of God is the, is the pillar of truth, right? It, it's, it's, it holds it up. It holds it in place. You take the pillars away, the whole thing is a mess. Timothy would walk through Ephesus and literally see hundreds of temples, hundreds of public buildings, hundreds of places that had temples or uh, pillars. You could not walk through ancient Ephesus without seeing pillars everywhere. And, and Timothy's going, I get it. I get the picture. The pillars of the household of God are crucial to holding up the truth that we confess and we believe. It's crucial. Why does church matter? Why does this family matter to the whole world? Because we are the ones who hold up the truth. It's the job of the church in this world to hold on to the things we know are true in Jesus Christ. This is why when the social consensus of our culture speaks against or lives against or fights against the truth, we stand firm in the truth. It's why that we are Bible heavy here at Eastview Christian Church. We don't apologize for it. We're not ashamed of it. We could do trendy, cool-sounding, you know, sermon series that are, you know, really funny, and we could tell stories. Believe me, people, I'm hilarious. <laughs> but I don't want to mess around with stuff that may be gone by Monday or Tuesday. I want to spend time together with you every Sunday telling you the truth. And we want to tell the truth to our kids in the Eastview Kids Department. And we want to tell the truth to our students, our junior high and high school students down the hall. We do it in our small groups. We do it in our resources. We are Bible heavy. You may or may not know this. I think you do. But the elders of the church, we make decisions on the authority of Scripture. The first thing we ask about every, there's a lot of good ideas out there. We go, well, is it biblical? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible allow? What does the Bible tell us? What's the Bible leading us to? Guys, the Bible is the written word of truth that points to Jesus, who is the living truth. I don't want you to get this wrong, okay? This is the record of the truth. It's holy, inspired word of God, but it points to Jesus, who is the living word of God. That's the truth that we hold up. By the way, what happens, what happens when pillars fall? What happens when pillars fall? This is Ephesus today. This is the location of Diana's temple. There's, there's one pillar that's kind of been assembled. You can, you can see they've like stacked it back up. They found pieces. Here's like half a pillar. You know what we call it when pillars fall? We have a word for it. It's called ruins. And that's the truth about um, Diana's temple, and it's the truth about our culture. When the church stops holding on to the truth and holding up the truth, the culture collapses. It becomes ruins, and I think we're seeing that in our reality right now. If you're young, I'm sorry that you, you have to hear these sermons from the Word of God every week that are the truth, and I'm just going, this is true. It doesn't matter what you feel or think or see or whatever. I know you're a younger generation. Maybe you want more. I don't know. All I know is that this is the pillar, and if we start tearing down pillars, the building is going to collapse. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of that in our reality. The truth we support is the written word of God, the Bible, that points to Jesus, who is himself the living word of God. How do I know? Because Jesus said, I'm the truth. That's the pillar. We're going to tear that pillar down. Jesus is the truth. And everything that he said was true and everything that he did was right. And so 
in this, this Ephesians passage that I alluded to a little bit earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. I'm going back to it again because it's all five times in this it has building and house words, talking about the household of God. Listen to these very carefully. The word of God. We are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple on the Lord. In him, you are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Guys, I want you to, I'm just gonna give you a really simple tutorial. Oops, don't do that. Oh yeah, all right. A really simple tutorial. Jesus is the cornerstone. It's the first stone that's laid. It's the, most, it's the straightest stone, the perfect stone. Jesus is the truth. The foundation are the teachings of the apostles in the first century. Remember the church? They, they, they um, adhered to, they practiced daily the teaching of the apostles. Why? Because the apostles hung out with Jesus. They saw him, watched him, heard him, and said, this is the truth. And now you and I, we find ourselves here as the household of God being the pillars of truth. That's who we are. That's our job. That's why the church is so important. That's why when people say, I don't like the church, or the church is outdated, or the church is old-fashioned, I'm like, no, we are the pillars of what God is doing in this world, which leads us to the mystery that we confess. I want to get to this because this is really awesome. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. As I've been saying all along, the household has rules. The household also has a confession. You have a confession in your household, whether you call it that or not. It's the stuff, the, the word literally means the stuff we all say the same, the same words. You have a vocabulary, you have a, you have a, a house kind of language that your home speaks, and the church is the same way. And, and Paul, in this verse, in verse 16, 316, by the way, if you just go through the Bible and memorize all the 316s, you, you'd be astounded at how many of them point to Jesus Christ. This one does for sure. But what's cool about this passage that I really, really love is this a cool piece of history from the ancient church. Are you into ancient? This is a 2,000-year-old creed or hymn that the church sang back in the 60s. Not the hippie 60s, the toga 60s, all right? Back in the first century 60s. How do we know this? Because of the way it's constructed, literary, the literary style is in the form of a creed or a song. I don't know if you think this is cool or not, but I love singing hymns that are 100 years old. I really love when I can come into contact with people of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ from the past, who are singing a song that's 2,000 years old. What an incredible, incredible truth this is. Now listen, this is still the truth our family confesses. I'm going, to, I'm going to lay out for you the, the first century. This is the, what do you believe about Jesus? They would say these six things. I'm going to lay it out for you. I, I want to make sure that, that those of you who are not followers of Jesus Christ today, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that you would, you would look at the, uh, these six and you would listen to them. This is what we confess, guys. If you're brothers and sisters in the family of household of God, this is what we confess. First of all, we confess that Jesus was manifest in the flesh. I'm going to write these up here because I want you guys to see them and maybe even put them to memory. Like if you went to a church service in first century Ephesus, they would go, hey, let's all say that confession. And they would begin, 
Jesus was manifest in the flesh. John 1 and 1 John 1 say this, that which we have seen from the, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, we've touched with our hands, the word was made, listen, manifest. And we have seen it, John says, and we testify to it. You've heard me say this before, but the apostle John was perhaps the greatest witness of Jesus Christ of all. He spent 60 plus years of his life from Jesus walking on the shores of Galilee to the church in the second and third generation going, I'm telling you, he literally came. There was a Jesus. He was God in the flesh. I've seen him. I've touched him. I've walked with him. I know him. This is the confession that begins what we believe about Jesus Christ, that Jesus was manifest in the flesh, God in the flesh. He really was human. Very important. That's why Christmas is such a big deal. I know Christmas, you want it to be about a baby in a manger, and of course it is. But what's a big deal about it is that Jesus, God, became flesh. He manifested himself. He revealed himself to us. The second word here is vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated. It's a word that you use every day with your children. You know, Vindication, what does that mean? It really means to be made righteous. Some of your versions probably have the word justified there. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Well, Jesus was already perfect, uh, so he didn't meet, need to be made righteous, but the Spirit validated that Jesus was God in the flesh from conception to resurrection. Again, every year at this time, we repeat this through the Christmas story. How did, how did Jesus come into the world? The power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and she was conceived of the Holy Spirit. How was Jesus born? It was Holy Spirit work. Jesus was just another birth in Bethlehem. Nope, not according to the way it happened. He was born of a virgin. It was Holy Spirit power. And then he went on and did miracles. And the power of the Holy Spirit helped them cast out demons and heal people of all kinds. He's the person of the Trinity who powerfully resurrected Jesus from the dead. How did Jesus rise from the dead? The power of the Holy Spirit. He is, he's the one who is the beginning of the church of Jesus. How was the church? The church was marked by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. What's my point? My point is, anybody can come along and say, hey, I was born, I'm the son of God, I'm God in the flesh. But what if there's another supernatural force that comes behind and says, nope, yeah, he really is. He really is. He testifies. The reason I love preaching from the word of God and talking to you about Jesus is because I know every time I say Jesus, the Holy Spirit says, yep, 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 yep. Listen to that. That's right. And he brings power to the name of Jesus. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Not only was he manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, but he was seen by angels. Seen by the angels. Again, if you want more Christmas, I got it. How did the Christmas story start? An angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a kid. An angel went to Joseph and said, she's going to have a kid. It's okay. Right? An angel went out to some shepherds in the field and said, hey, Today is born this day in the city of David, a Savior is Christ the Lord. And then a bunch of angels joined and said, glory to God in the highest. When Jesus rose from the dead, there were angels sitting on the tomb. The angels have seen the glory of God. What does that mean? It means there's a spiritual reality going on. Spiritual beings have seen this. And I, I believe this. The, the scripture teaches the angels didn't know the plan. They didn't know what God was up to. They had no idea how it was all going to turn out. But they had an incredible view of the salvation story as they watched from heaven God's plan for salvation unfold on the earth. They got to see it. He was seen by angels. And by the way, the angels are still seeing all that's going on. And since Jesus' resurrection, they've not stopped praising him. 
They're still, they're still seeing what Jesus has done, and they praise him nonstop worship service in heaven. The, the, the fourth one is proclaimed among the nations. Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. Now, oh, that got a little sloppy there. Yeah, yeah. Proclaimed. Just put in the first four letters, and then your computer will fix it for you, all right? Proclaimed. He's proclaimed among the nations. He's heralded. He's preached among the nations. There's two cool things about this confession real quickly. The first one is it's a worldwide message. It covers the whole world. It's for every country. It's for every person in every country. There are literally Christians in every country in the world today. But the other part of this message that's really cool that he's proclaimed among the nations is the word nations itself. The word nations is the Greek word ethnos. We get ethnicity or ethnic from it. What it means is, is that there's a shift. The people in the Old Testament that lived in the household of God, they thought it's just us, the descendants of Abraham. And the, the gospel and Jesus comes along and says, no, I am the fulfillment of Abraham and now everybody's in the house. Now every race, every, every color, every nation, every nationality. Do you think in this time of racial strife and competition and hatred that this is a good message? I do. He was proclaimed among the nations. All people, all places, all time. That leads to the next thing that we, that we know about Jesus. He was believed. He was believed on in the world. His faith is how you get into the family of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, by believing that he is the son of the living God. The gospel of Jesus has been believed in a way that no other world belief system or other religion has been believed. We, in just 30 years after this uh, religion had begun, after Christianity had begun, when Paul's writing to, to Timothy, there's probably, this is an estimate from a lot of scholars, 25 to 30,000 Christians in the world, right? By the second century, it probably had topped 150 to 200,000 Christians in the world. By 325, when it became the world religion based on the Roman emperor Constantine, there were over million, there were millions of Christians in the world. And today, the number that you measure Christians that have had faith over the years, throughout all the centuries, throughout all the countries, worldwide, billions of people. There's something about this that has been believed. And if you're here today and you're going, I just don't know if I can believe. I don't know if I can trust. Listen, it's just a step of faith. It's not blind faith. It's not a dumb step. It's, a very, it's very believable. It's very provable. There are evidences and there are witnesses and there are testimonies. And so we believe, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, we may be weird, but we believe this because it's believable. And then finally, taken up in glory. This is the very important part of the story because it completes the cycle of what Jesus did. He came from glory. He was God in the flesh and manifest himself as mankind. He did all the work of salvation and saving for us, and then he was taken up into glory. Yes, he was taken up literally. They watched him ascend in the clouds. But more importantly, he came into heaven with the name that's above every other name, Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, and he now is in glory unsurpassed beauty, shiny glory. He's exalted above all. That's why we sing to him. That's why we praise him. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we don't agree on everything. We say things different and we see things different. And you might walk away from church sometimes going, 
our pastor's weird. That person's weird. The people in my small group are different. I don't see eye to eye to them. If you think you want to join the church because we're all alike, you're in the wrong organization because this is a family. This is the household of God. And I promise you, amen, right? I promise you that we are weird. I promise you that. But I promise you that if you, until you find your story in this family, you really won't know where you belong. I want you to hear that if you're not a follower of Jesus. Until you find your place and your story in this story, in this family, in this confession, you'll never be able to understand what life is about. It's been repeated for 2,000 years in our family. Like Thanksgiving, we hold this tradition. We believe that Jesus is all these things. And he saved us, and that's our story. And so we behave in the household of God so that people can come to know this story. One, one thing is clear. God has done everything within his power, everything within his power to include us in his household. I want you to hear that today. God has done everything within his godly power to include you in his family, to include you in his family. He has gone to great lengths, so much so that he has given his son and his death on the cross so that he could adopt all of his creation into his family. And all of this is for an eternal dwelling place. I want to remind you, there's one more household. We all have one household left. There's one move. Those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, there's one more move. This time, God's not moving to us. We're moving to him. Jesus says in John chapter 14, in my father's house, or many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place for you, I'll come and get you to take you where I am. Guys, right now, God's building a house. So those of us who live in his neighborhood now, live in his household now, we'll get to live with him eternally. We have one more move. This time, God's not moving to us. We're moving to his neighborhood and we're gonna live there forever as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. In the meantime, the pillar of truth and the confession of faith are what this, is, this house is about. So, brothers and sisters, let's behave, not to impress the Father, but to represent this story to the world. Amen.